0: I am sorry, Spartan, but come.
1: Do you recognize that sound? That's from the video game Halo 3, a game worth killing for, according to Daniel Petrick.
2: Ring around the road. A full of ashes, ashes, we all fall down.
0: <laughs> Welcome to the Parasite Podcast. I'm Sherry. And I'm Marie. And today we're talking about the murder of Susan Petrick and the attempted murder of Pastor Mark Petrick
1: by their son, Daniel, or Danny Petrick. A quick heads up, this episode contains instances of violence, since we obviously talk about murder. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, please subscribe to it or like it while we chat.
0: The pastor Mark Petrick, his wife Susan, and their family lived in Wellington, Ohio. They'd moved there a few years ago and were quickly accepted and loved by their evangelical congregation. They had two daughters, one married and one still at home. Danny was their youngest child and only son. Susan was said to be the perfect preacher's wife. She was happy, willing to help, a good mom, and she had an excellent sense of humor. According to Danny's own report, as presented on Katie Keurig, he had a very good childhood. His parents took care of him and everything he needed was provided. They had homeschooled him until 2006, his sophomore year, when he was enrolled at Wellington High School. He'd held his own in public school, earning a 2.7 GPA the first year. He enjoyed playing video games with his dad and his friends, hunting with his dad, and playing the drums. But Danny self-identified as a rebellious kid. He said he would butt heads with his parents over the things he wanted to do. He mostly had conflicts with his dad who as head of the household was the primary disciplinarian. They had a very traditional household, and he pretty much knew how to get around his mom when he really wanted something. His parents worked together to rear healthy, well-rounded children who would grow up to do good things in the world. But based on his dad's statements, Danny was a rebellious boy. He would lie, manipulate, and sneak out of the house. Here, We'll let Danny's dad tell you in his own words.
3: Danny uh, started to get a little bit um, a little bit rebellious, you know, testing the waters. What kid doesn't? We definitely kept an eye on what he did.
1: So that interview was post-murder? Yes, that was post-murder. That surprises me because it almost sounds like he's excusing Danny's rebellious phase that included murder. I look forward to finding out how his dad got there. Um, But it sounds like he was a little rebellious, but maybe not enough to alarm his father. Mm, He was pretty rebellious.
0: According to interviews, people said that he would lie, manipulate, sneak out of the house in order to just be with his friends. He sounds like he
1: had a very rebellious streak. So how strict were his parents?
0: Well, as you could tell, his dad said that he kept an eye on him, that that he and his wife both. Kept an eye on Danny because of this rebellion that he was fomenting. But according to his dad in other interviews, his dad made house rules, but they were just that, house rules. His dad wasn't concerned about what Danny did when he was with his friends because he didn't think it was the parents' place to monitor their children when they were out with friends. So it was kind of like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. If you're at Jonathan's house, Jonathan's his friend. We aren't going to worry because we aren't the parents that monitor our children's behavior.
1: Okay, so I think that can be a little confusing if the rule is no doing this but only at this location and you can do it anywhere else.
0: I kind of think it plays into the problems that they had with him. Okay, so let's, let's keep going with the story. Okay, so 15-year-old Danny didn't realize how his life was about to change when he decided to go snowboarding one fateful day. He hit the slopes, ready to tear up the mountain with his friends, and he didn't think about the fact that snowboarding injuries are four times more likely than skiing injuries, which is about four to sixteen injuries per thousand snowboarding days. He must have been having the time of his life practicing jumps and acrobatics with his friends when a misstep caused an accident, injuring his back. That's kind of strange. Usually they break their arm or leg. Or a lot of times, wrist injuries are very common, or even head injuries. Back injuries are not common at all for snowboarding accidents. In fact, they're quite rare. He was reportedly ordered by the doctor to take it easy. Walk, don't run. And he was also informed that his football days were over. See, Danny was an avid football player. In fact, most of his pictures are pictures of him dressed up in football uniforms.
1: If he was homeschooled, when did he start playing football?
0: I'm not sure, but the pictures go way back. So they must have had some community football games or he must have opted into that at the schools.
1: Oh, okay. Okay, so he was involved in football for his whole life. Right,
0: his identity was pretty wrapped up in football. I couldn't confirm any details regarding this next part of the story, but somehow that back injury caused him to contract a related staph infection somewhere along the way. Which is really weird because a staph infection is related to injuries that break the skin, not jarred backs. So I double checked this with our staff doctor, (laughs) he's a friend who's a doctor,
1: and he said that it was very unusual. That is very strange. I wonder if there's more to that injury.
0: Um, There might be. I'm really not sure. But any staph infection could have been cleared up with an antibiotic. It would not have lasted a year. And according to his attorneys, this injury kept him bedridden and home for a year. Well, let's go back to the violent video games for a second. His dad said they were never allowed in the house. He and Susan were opposed to exposing their kids to graphic violence and they worried that vicarious experiences could cause Danny to become violent. But Danny, in his interview with Deborah Roberts for The Katie Couric Show, indicated his parents did know he played Halo at home. And at some point, they did banish all the video games from the house because they did not like the violence of Halo. He stated that the banishing had created a lot of anger and resentment on his part. Keep that in mind as we go forward, too.
1: As far as patterns go, it's interesting. This is another child who had parents trying to pull the reins back in after being kind of permissive now that you point that out yes <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just interesting to see some similarities as we go right. so you said he was kept trapped at home for a year right. um had he been going to boarding school or what did they mean
0: once he had the back injury his defense attorney at trial said that he was trapped at home because of the injury for a year that he was bedridden trying to heal from staff Which sounds really weird when you think about it. Staph infection is cleared up easily. Back injuries don't usually cause you to be bedridden for a year if you're a healthy 16-year-old boy. And he wasn't bedridden because he was going to friends' houses. That's part of the story, too. So, but he
1: was back to being homeschooled. So he was in
0: public school for about a year and a half.
1: Okay, And and so being home for a year was home from school. Yes.
0: So, anyway, Danny was back to being homeschooled after only a year and a half of public schooling, like I was saying. And according to all the reports, he started playing more and more video games, mostly the primary shooter games like Halo, with his friend Jonathan. What does primary shooter mean? It means that you, as the player, are a shooter. So what you usually see is a perspective of someone who's holding a gun and shooting at people and running through things and shooting at people, but you feel that you are the first-person shooter. Like.
1: Oh, okay. okay I've heard of first-person shooting games.
0: Yeah, that's what it is, and that's what Halo is. So he admits that he actually started playing Halo at a friend's house when he was in middle school, way before his accident. He says he enjoyed playing them as an escape, But this is where information is a little bit sketchy. News reports and his defense attorney claim Danny was bedridden and also that he couldn't play violent games at home, which his father confirms. Yet Danny claims in his interview with Deborah Roberts that he was playing 18 hours a day. And then he quickly likened his behavior to that of a drug addict, which, spoiler, becomes the defense strategy. Regardless of where he was playing them, whether he was at home, playing them for 18 hours a day or at Jonathan's playing them for 18 hours a day, all reports indicated he was indeed playing. He started playing them nonstop, much to his parents' chagrin. I guess he wasn't spending too much time at home, but then again, was he bedridden? It's really not clear. But like a lot of boys who fall down this rabbit hole of video games, this became a tug of war with his parents. They wanted him to get a life and he wanted Halo to be his life. So I'm really not sure what the story is there because there are so many conflicting stories regarding what was happening during that period in his life. But we do know that he was being homeschooled. We do know that he had some kind of an injury. Mm -hmm. We don't know how or why the staff was involved or not involved with that injury. And we know that he played with Jonathan, either remotely or at Jonathan's house.
1: And that his parents were opposed to the video games, at least somewhat. Right, but that's the story so far.
0: So anyway, Halo 3 was released on September 25th, 2007. Now remember, he's been playing Halo since middle school. Mm -hmm. But his parents refused to relent and let him buy the game. Danny snuck out of his bedroom window with $70 in hand and bought his own copy of Halo 3. But his mom caught him sneaking back in and she confronted him. Danny confessed what he'd done, his mom confiscated the game, and a fight ensued between him and his parents, which culminated in Danny being told to get out of the house until he felt he would be willing to follow the house rules.
1: That, again, does not sound like a boy who is bed-bound. You don't kick out a child who... (laughs) Well, okay, a couple (laughs) reasons. You can't sneak out of a window if you're bedridden. Well, and if your back's so injured that you're bedridden. Mm Mm-hmm. And you don't kick out a kid that you think is bedridden.
0: Right, right. Well, Danny went to his friend's house, but his copy of Halo 3 remained locked in his dad's gun safe, where his dad had put it. I didn't find anything that revealed how they navigated his return home, but Danny did return home the day he would shoot his parents with his dad's gun. So how did he get his dad's gun? Well, Mark kept the only key to the gun safe on his key ring, and he'd always leave his key ring on the kitchen counter when he got home at night. October 20th was no different. Danny apparently snatched the key ring and took both the Halo 3 game and Mark's gun from the safe. No one was going to tell him what he could or couldn't do. Danny knew his father was the problem here, and he could probably get his mother to relent and let him play Halo 3, but that didn't matter. If he was going to kill his dad, his mom was going to have to go too. He'd already carefully thought that all out. His parents were going to fall victim to a murder-suicide. He'd been thinking about it for about a week. Mark would kill Susan in the heat of a big fight, and then realizing that he'd killed his wife, he would immediately kill himself. The motive was attended to, logistics had been considered, and Danny was ready. He loaded the gun, put on his most pleasant face, and headed into the living room. Mark and Susan were enjoying a quiet Saturday evening when Danny entered the living room. He flashed them a little smile and said, Hey guys, would you close your eyes? I have a surprise for you. His parents were relieved and curious. Instead of the anger and manipulation they were used to coming from Danny, they were thinking perhaps he'd come around and thought of a way to apologize for all of his recent bad behaviors. They glanced at each other and then closed their eyes not realizing it was the last time they would see each other alive. And Danny set his plan in motion. Here's Danny's dad describing what happened next.
3: And he came out and he said to me and Sue, hey, mom and dad, I have a surprise for you. Will you close your eyes? And I glanced over at Sue and I was like, okay, I mean, cool. We thought maybe he was gonna be showing us something or apologizing about all the video game tension. He came right around here, walked up right behind me, and shot me right in the head. And then he turned, shot, took four shots at his mom, and he hit her three times, and she died almost instantly. He had my nine millimeter handgun. He tried to hand it to me, I wouldn't take it. He kept trying to give me the gun and I wouldn't.
1: Okay, so that was disturbing. But so basically what happened is Danny got behind the couch and he shot his dad first, um, and he only shot him once because, of course, you can only shoot yourself once in a suicide. Right. Um, so he shot him in the left temple, um, and then he started shooting his mother from across the room, mm-hmm. which also supports this murder-suicide frame. Right. And so then he shot his mother four times from across the room, in keeping with this murder-suicide frame mm-hmm. that he was trying to pull together, mm-hmm. um, he hit her three times, which is really a lot, um, especially from across the room. That's pretty good aim. He's not kind of shooting like crazy, right? But then his dad was upset, and it was really kind of cold. He didn't freak out. He didn't run away. He just like starts trying to get his dad to take the gun. And, and says, hey, dad, here's your gun. Take it. I mean, that's snotty. It is snotty, but he's really thought through how to frame them, and he's not losing his nerve. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people would lose their nerve when they see their parents actually shot. Exactly. Exactly.
0: And... I don't think he would have gotten away with it because he was a kid. He didn't mm-hmm. think about the angle of the gun being in the, you know, in the wrong direction and so forth. Mm-hmm. But he thought he was getting away with murder at that point until the doorbell rang. Oh. Daniel's sister and her husband were coming over to watch the Cleveland Indians on TV with Mark and Susan.
1: Oh, okay. So obviously the dad didn't die because we have all these quotes for him.
0: Right. So fear suddenly soared with Mark's pain, according to Mark. He was afraid that Danny might hurt his sister too. And he was lying on the couch, unable to move, his life seeping out of him as he listened to Danny turn his sister and her husband away, saying they couldn't come in because their parents were in a big fight. Then dread spread through Mark as he realized that his daughter was his only chance for his and Susan's survival. It was all he could do to work through the pain and terror just to make one guttural cry for help. And that cry was answered by his son-in-law, who was a hero. He rushed through the door, encountered the murder scene, quickly let his wife know what was happening and told her to call 911 and started working on saving Mark's life.
1: That is really brave and indicates to me that they knew Danny was a problem. You usually don't break down the door that quickly.
0: Right, right. Here's a portion of that nine one one call.
2: What's going on? I don't know what happened. I just came over to my parents' house because we were gonna
1: watch the game and um my mom is shot and my dad is shot and my brother's here. What?
2: Does anybody know what happened? Did did your brother shoot your parents?
1: I don't know. I think
2: it's so. <laughs> wrong.
1: I can't imagine how disturbing it would be to walk into your family home and see your parents, like, bleeding to death and your brother just standing there, nonchalant. I
0: I can't even imagine it, but you will not believe what Danny did next. So what did he do next? While Bedlam was breaking out in the living room and everyone was trying to save his parents' lives, Danny nonchalantly... Retrieved his copy of Halo 3, climbed into the family van, and headed to his friend's house to play him some Halo 3. But he was arrested before he reached his friend's house. Well, good. Uh, Yeah. As the police were handcuffing him, he said, My dad, he shot my mom, and then he shot himself.
1: So he's still trying to set up that murder. He has forgotten one important thing, which is that people who genuinely witness a murder don't usually leave with a video game. Exactly. But he starts crying in a
0: high-pitched, tear-filled voice, wailing, my dad shot my mom. As he sat in the cop car, he muttered, Lord, please don't let my dad die. Please don't let my dad die. And then, once settled into an interrogation room, Danny began weaving the lies that were meant to get him out of trouble.
2: My dad was just yelling, just screaming at my mom. And then I, then I heard my dad walk in the room and walk into his bedroom and then walk back out. Oh, I ran out there and my mom had been shot. He pointed the gun at me. And then he said he was sorry and then he shot himself.
1: Okay, so he really tried to sell the murder suicide, and that is a very dramatic story. Um, but ultimately not very believable.
0: You're right. It, it isn't very believable, especially because he's still carrying out the plan as though his sister and her husband did not interrupt the murder.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, he did not think that through very well because if you witness murder-suicide and you're upset about it, you don't take a video game and trot off.
0: No, you don't, and you don't leave so nonchalantly at all.
1: Mm -hmm. And now he's got witnesses that he didn't plan on.
0: That's right. Let's take a break. Luckily, Danny's dad, Mark, survived the shooting. Mark could confirm that Danny was the gunman before help had arrived, he told his daughter. When interviewed after the shootings, Mark referred to him as a pathological liar and he told the police that Danny has a serious problem with telling the truth, those are quotes. He also said Daniel knows how to manipulate, his brain really works. A psychologist, Dr. Newhouse interviewed Danny after his interrogation. In response to the question of what went wrong Danny looked the psychologist straight in the eye and flatly said, Well, first, my dad didn't die. Then my sister and brother-in-law came over early, and it all just blew up in my face.
1: Okay, so the problem is not, well, I shot my parents, and I shot them because of this, and that was wrong. It was, well, my plan was not executed perfectly. Right. And this is
0: very concerning in light of the fact that he is also saying he is very, very sorry. This is not an indicator that this boy was sorry for what he had done.
1: No. He's only sorry that it didn't work.
0: Right. He also told the psychologist, Dr. Newhouse, that he had planned the murders for at least a week. According to an article in the Marysville Tribune, when asked why he did it, Danny told the psychologist Now that I was 16, this is a quote, Now that I was 16, I wanted to make my own decisions, not live by their rules. He's a child. I don't understand that attitude. It tells you that this boy was not sorry for what he had done. No. And most
1: people learn to live by their own rules without murdering their parents. Exactly.
0: And Danny spent a considerable amount of time in jail awaiting his trial. His dad hated him at first. He went through many surgeries in the first 30 days after the
1: shootings. I'm honestly surprised that he lived. Being shot in the head is no small thing.
0: Right. Well, apparently what saved his life is Danny was standing up. So when he shot him in the left temple, it crossed over and broke his jaw in two places. So instead of going through his brain, like a straight shoot would go? Mm-hmm. Straight shoot, is that right? Straight shot. Like a straight shot would go. It went at an, an angle, so the trajectory was out.
1: That is horrible. I mean, in a way, it's very lucky because it sounds like he didn't have serious brain damage. Right, right. He still has the trauma from being shot by his child and watching his wife die, so it's not that lucky, but right. relatively. Right, I've thought about
0: this, and I'm not sure if it's better to survive this and know that your son murdered your wife and tried to kill you or to just die. It's really hard. That yes. Is. Yes, because the what's left in the aftermath is traumatizing.
1: Mm-hmm. And then you have to decide. And all of the parents who survive, whether the child tried to kill them or not, now have to decide, do I have a relationship with this person who killed my spouse? And their mother. Mm-hmm. And that's right. a hard decision. Right
0: so for a long time Mark was very angry and hated him and then he decided God's grace should help him forgive his son he was a pastor so he petitioned for the right to visit Daniel in jail as his clergyman and it was very unusual they said well you kind of fit three boxes you're the father you're the victim you're the clergy Mm -hmm. That's kind of a problem. And they had to get a special dispensation to have that occur because they could not have all of their conversations be held privately like you usually would get with a clergyman.
1: Oh, that's very important. I hadn't thought about that privacy
0: issue. Yeah, so they did that. So he had the meetings with his son, and more than a year after the shootings, as the trial began looming before him, Danny told his dad, The man he'd shot and then callously tried to set up as the killer of his wife, quote, Dad, I'm so sorry for what I did to mom, to you, and to the whole family. I'm so glad you're alive. And Mark responded tearfully, you're my boy, you're my son. This is as per Mark at the sentencing hearing. And his dad cried as Danny told him he could hardly live with the guilt over what he'd done. He asked his father to be sure their congregation be advised of his sorrow over his crimes. Now, based on what you know, when someone says, I am so sorry I did this, I wish I hadn't done this, and they're still sitting in jail awaiting their trial, what typically happens?
1: They usually will plead guilty because they want to save the victims. I mean, trial can be extremely difficult and often further traumatizes people who have already gone through something horrific. Mm -hmm. So usually people who are truly remorseful, even for less serious crimes like white collar crimes, they will cut a plea deal or plead guilty and, and kind of help avoid a trial.
0: Right, and that's what I expected to happen here when he's telling his dad how remorseful he is, but that's not what happens. Danny declined to plead guilty despite the judge agreeing to leave the door open to a guilty plea by agreeing that he would give the minimum sentence of 23 years to life. Instead, Danny insisted on moving forward toward his trial where he was confident he would leave his troubles behind by arguing that he was just too young at age 16 to understand that when you die, you don't reset. (laughs) He said, I shot my parents, but I thought they would come back to life.
1: That's ridiculous for an 8-year-old,
0: much less a 16-year-old. Right. And here's how he explained it all to Deborah Roberts during that interview. So tell me about that day, October 20th. How did you wind up with a gun in your hand?
2: We always did uh, a lot of hunting and a lot of target shooting. So there was a lot of guns in the house. I went and got the gun from my dad's closet.
3: Why did you go get the gun to begin with?
2: I was angry at my dad. He was... Firm about it, adamant about it, that there would be none of this, and that's the way it was going to be. And so that created a lot of resentment and a lot of anger.
3: So did you think, I'm going to go get a gun, and I'm going to kill my dad?
2: I did. I went in my room, and I was mad. Uh, I told my dad, "Uh, hang on, I got something I want to show you. I went and grabbed a gun, and...
3: Your dad said that you came out, and you said, close your eyes. Right. then you fired the gun Mm -hmm. at your mom first?
2: No, it was at my dad first.
3: Do you remember that look on her face? Did you think that
0: you were just hurting them? Or did you think that you were killing them?
2: Uh, I didn't understand. Like I said, I was a teenager at the time. There's a difference between knowing something and understanding something. And understanding that I was taking a human life.
0: You're seeing the blood on your parents, on your mom. What, what were you feeling at that moment?
2: Mom am used to playing these games. And at the end of every round, everything just resets. At the end of every level, everybody's still there.
3: But you're 16 years old. I mean, you've got to know your parents aren't going to reset after you fire
2: this gun at them.
3: Are you blaming the video game for what you did?
2: No.
0: I absolutely do not believe him.
1: I don't either, I think that that was very disingenuous. I agree, beyond words, it makes me so angry to listen to that.
0: Moreover, his attorney claimed his love of violent video games should be considered an addiction and addiction withdrawal should mitigate his responsibility in all of this and possibly provide a basis for a diminished capacity defense. Wasn't he a hunter? Like, he killed animals. Right, and I'm pretty sure none of those animals he killed jumped up and ran off of his plate or ran away from him after he'd shot them. I'm pretty sure he was clear that a dead person is a dead person.
1: Yeah, and he'd planned it for a week. I mean, this seems very insincere. It doesn't feel like he's even trying to come up with a good lie.
0: Right, but... His attorney asked for a bench trial
1: rather than a jury trial. Can you talk a little bit about why that might be? Probably because he knew that a jury would rip him apart. He was probably trying to make some sort of technical argument that he thought a judge would understand better than a jury, and he knew that he would not be sympathetic to a jury. Did it work? Well, no. (laughs) Um, The judge, being a reasonable person, uh, rejected his addiction defense and found him guilty of both aggravated murder and attempted aggravated murder. And Danny was stunned. Um, This boy does not... He doesn't seem to have been unintelligent, but he did seem to be overconfident. Yes. He had the audacity to be shocked that his argument didn't work. But then the judge held a separate sentencing hearing, and his dad came to that sentencing hearing. And he actually came to support... Danny. He told the court that he felt Danny may have a divine calling to set an example for children everywhere to save them from making (laughs) the mistakes Danny had.
0: I do not want my children
1: using Danny as an example. Sorry. I think he's a terrible example. I believe by the mistakes he means um getting too into video games and then killing your parents. That's not a mistake. Not when you planned it for a week. Every boy in that era, not every boy, but I would say more than 90% of the boys played Halo and very few of them murdered anyone. But I think that people grieve in different ways. And I think that his father was trying to see how this could be part of God's plan. And so he he told the judge that he hoped that Daniel could get a second chance to do something positive and constructive. And I think he sincerely believed that this could be a calling for Danny, that maybe there was a reason for all of this and that Danny could do some good in the world. I'm not sure if Danny was sincere.
0: I'm he, pretty sure he wasn't sincere just based on the fact that he insisted on a trial after he apologized that he continued to make excuses for himself.
1: Yeah, he didn't act like someone usually does when they actually accept responsibility Mm -hmm. for their actions. And usually people who are sincerely um, repentant don't ask their victims to advocate for their release. Right. If they care about their victims, they don't use them in that way. Contributing to my belief that he was not sincere is his behavior at trial. He... Looks like he's crying, he's sniffling, he's wiping at his nose and his eyes, but there are no visible tears. And his attorney's behavior, I think, also indicates that they don't think he's sincere. What were they? Well, they were on either side of him, um, and neither of them patted him on the back or got him a tissue or any of the things you see. Attorneys are people, too, and usually they have sympathy toward their client's.
0: Yeah, I've seen a lot of videos where if the child is crying at the trial, the attorney puts a consoling arm around the Mm -hmm. child's shoulders or pats the child's hand or even just reaches out and touches their arm.
1: And that wouldn't be inappropriate in a courtroom. I think that the fact that they didn't have any impulse to comfort him is telling. I agree. So, Danny was of course offered a chance to speak at the sentencing hearing. Danny gave a brief nod to his attorney who was standing with him. He took a deep breath and kinda <sighs> excels, but he shakes his head as his other attorney stands. And he hangs his head and keeps shaking his head. Um, in response to something his attorney whispers to him, he replies, I can't. And then he sits back down in his seat.
0: Now tell me if I'm right isn't this their chance to say I'm sorry to the family?
1: Yes, and often they'll turn around and look into um, the gallery of the courtroom and speak to the family and say, wow, I am so sorry for what I did and the effect that I had on you and the effect that my actions will have on you for the rest of your life. Um, And his family was there, his father, his sister, his grandfather, and other family members. They were in the courtroom and he didn't take this opportunity to turn around and say please forgive me or i'm sorry for taking susan away from you um or my mom yeah um she was different things to different people but he didn't acknowledge any of their grief or loss he just stood up and like shook his head um he still wasn't crying but he was still kind of making motions like maybe he was crying, but he didn't say anything. The prosecution took this as further evidence that he was remorseless and asserted that he had used his dad prior to the beginning of the trial with his conversations with the, I'm sorry, I sure miss mom. And they argued this was a trial strategy, which it looks like it was. It sure looks like that to me. From outside, maybe he was sincere, but it it doesn't look like it. But in any case, the judge appeared to agree with the prosecution regarding Danny's culpability and remorse. And the judge noted that even if the incessant playing of these shoot 'em up video games had warped his sense of reality, Danny was still guilty of murder and mentioned that Danny had done some careful planning to commit this crime, which he had. Yes. He had really thought out setting up this murder-suicide scenario. To the
0: point that he couldn't readjust once he had a witness thrown in.
1: Mm -hmm. So he probably had rehearsed that over and over in his mind because he was stuck on it like it was a train track. Right. This planning worked against the defense's hope for an insanity plea. And Danny was sentenced to 23 years to life. So let's talk a little bit more, though, about his father because I think his father is the really interesting character in this story. What did his dad do... I know that he was saying that he'd forgiven Danny for what he
0: did, but then he had some other things to say too. What were they?
1: So, his father has kind of become an advocate against video games, which it sounds like maybe he was before the attempt on his life and his Mm -hmm. wife's murder, Um, but he is convinced that the Columbine and Sandy Hook shootings were directly related to kids playing graphically violent video games. He lumps his son in with these shootings, which is a little bit strange. I'm not sure that he's analyzed this quite enough. I think his emotions are really vested in in his son not being fully responsible, but- Well, for starters, he's not a mass shooter. Yeah, his son's crime was not similar to Columbine or Sandy Hook. In those crimes, they are similar because it was young men who were angry at the world and went and killed a lot of people, not Mm. who planned a week in advance to kill their parents because they wanted to be in charge of their own rules. Right. So I think it's very different and not really a good comparison, but it's also the idea that violent video games are causing boys to kill is not really well supported. It has been studied a great deal. Dr. Michael Wellner points out that mass killers aren't influenced to kill by the video games they actually decide to kill and then use the video games as tactical training to help them carry out their murders okay that makes sense Mm -hmm. so they've already decided and this is just one way they can practice
0: that makes a lot of sense because i did go through all of our cases and this is the only one that tried to attribute video game addiction to murdering one's parents
1: Well, shooting two people and framing it as a murder-suicide isn't really played out in any video games I know of. It's all go out and kill a bunch of people more like you're hunting animals than like you're in a detective novel. Right. In my opinion, because he's so different than these mass shooters, I think that his claims of video addiction were a way to try and excuse himself and avoid taking responsibility for a murder that actually happened because his parents told him no. This was Mm -hmm. much more about a power struggle and an attempt to differentiate gone horribly wrong than it was about being influenced by video games where you go and kill aliens.
0: Or a 16 year old boy not being aware that when you shoot someone they die after he'd been hunting for years. That really irritated me.
1: I think that was very a very insincere argument. I think that he, even saying it, had to know how ridiculous it sounded. I, I don't know how he did that with a straight face. But anyway, Mark struggled. Um, obviously, he was a widower, but he ended up giving up his ministry. Danny, you remember he had two sisters? Mm-hmm. Those two sisters have grown up and gotten married, but Danny's dad and his sisters still visit with him in prison, and they say they've forgiven him for what he did. Danny is still in prison, and he isn't eligible for parole until he turns 39. He says that he studies and tries to improve himself, and he looks forward to the day he is released from prison, but all he wants is his freedom and to do what he wants to do.
0: Isn't that what got him put in prison in the
1: first place? It is. Yeah. But it doesn't sound like he's changed. What do you think, listeners? We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Feel free to join our discussions on
0: Instagram at Parasite Podcast, Facebook at Parasite Podcast, or by writing to us at Parasite Podcast at Parasite.org. And if you like our podcast, please subscribe to the Parasite Podcast and tell your friends about us. We'd like to thank Jade Brown for our theme music, and we'd like to thank Bowers House and Katie Curick along with True Crime Daily, the Times Recorder, Marysville Tribune, and the Chillicothe Gazette for a variety of information, sound bites, and the photos that we used for this show. And a special thanks to our staff doctor of the hour. You can see the photos from this episode at Parasite.org. Just click on the Parasite podcast once you get to the website. And we'll see you
1: back with another episode in two weeks. Goodbye for now. See you next time.
2: Ashes Ashes, we all fall
0: down.